Chapters 47 and 48 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 47. Ernest returned to Cambridge for the May term of 1858, on the plea of reading for ordination, with which now he was face to face, and much nearer than he liked. Up to this time, though not religiously inclined, he had never doubted the truth of anything that had been told him about Christianity. He had never seen any one who doubted, nor read anything that raised a suspicion in his mind as to the historical character of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testaments. It must be remembered that the year 1858 was the last of a term during which the peace of the Church of England was singularly unbroken. Between 1844, when Vestiges of Creation appeared, and 1859, when essays and reviews marked the commencement of that storm which raged until many years afterwards, there was not a single book published in England that caused serious commotion within the bosom of the church. Perhaps Buckle's History of Civilization and Mill's Liberty were the most alarming, but they, neither of them, reached the substratum of the reading public, and Ernest and his friends were ignorant of their very existence. The evangelical movement, with the exception to which I shall revert presently, had become almost a matter of ancient history. Tractarianism had subsided into a tenth day's wonder. It was at work, but it was not noisy. The vestiges were forgotten before Ernest went up to Cambridge. The Catholic aggression scare had lost its terrors. Ritualism was still unknown by the general provincial public and the Gorham and Hamden controversies were defunct some years since. Dissent was not spreading. The Crimean War was the one engrossing subject to be followed by the Indian Mutiny and the Franco-Austrian War. These great events turned men's minds from speculative subjects, and there was no enemy to the faith which could arouse even a languid interest. At no time probably since the beginning of the century could an ordinary observer have detected less sign of coming disturbance than at that of which I am writing. I need hardly say that the calm was only on the surface. Older men who knew more than undergraduates were likely to do must have seen that the wave of skepticism which had already broken over Germany was setting towards our own shores, nor was it long indeed before it reached them. Ernest had hardly been ordained before three works in quick succession arrested the attention even of those who paid least heed to theological controversy. I mean, Essays and Reviews, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, and Bishop Colenso's Criticisms on the Pentateuch. This, however, is a digression. I must revert to the one phase of spiritual activity which had any life in it, during the time Ernest was at Cambridge, that is to say, to the remains of the evangelical awakening of more than a generation earlier, which was connected with the name of Simeon. There were still a good many Simeonites, or, as they were more briefly called, Sims, in Ernest's time. 
every college contained some of them but their headquarters were at caius whither they were attracted by mr clayton who was at that time senior tutor and among the sizers of st john's behind the then chapel of this last-named college there was a labyrinth this was the name it bore of dingy tumble-down rooms tenanted exclusively by the poorest undergraduates who were dependent upon sizerships and scholarships for the means of taking their degrees to many even at st john's the existence and whereabouts of the labyrinth in which these sizers chiefly lived was unknown some men in earnest time who had rooms in the first court had never found their way through the sinuous passage which led to it in the labyrinth there dwelt men of all ages from mere lads to grey-haired old men who had entered late in life they were rarely seen except in hall or chapel or at lecture where their manners of feeding praying and studying were considered alike objectionable no one knew whence they came whither they went nor what they did for they never showed at cricket or the boats they were a gloomy seedy-looking conferee who had as little to glory in in clothes and manners as in the flesh itself ernest and his friends used to consider themselves marvels of economy for getting on with so little money but the greater number of dwellers in the labyrinth would have considered one half of their expenditure to be an exceeding measure of affluence and so doubtless any domestic tyranny which had been experienced by Ernest was a small thing to what the average Johnian sizer had had to put up with. A few would at once emerge on its being found after their first examination that they were likely to be ornaments to the college. These would win valuable scholarships that would enable them to live in some degree of comfort, and would amalgamate with the more studious of those who were in a better social position but even these, with few exceptions, were long in shaking off the uncouthness they brought with them to the university, nor would their origin cease to be easily recognizable till they had become dons and tutors. I have seen some of these men attain high position in the world of politics or science, and yet still retain a look of labyrinth and Johnian sizership. Unprepossessing, then, in feature, gait, and manners, unkempt and ill-dressed beyond what can be easily described, these poor fellows formed a class apart, whose thoughts and ways were not as the thoughts and ways of Ernest and his friends, and it was among them that Simeonism chiefly flourished. Destined most of them for the church, for in those days holy orders were seldom heard of, the Simeonites held themselves to have received a very loud call to the ministry, and were ready to pinch themselves for years so as to prepare for it by the necessary theological courses. To most of them the fact of becoming clergymen would be the entree into a social position from which they were at present kept out by barriers they well knew to be impassable. Ordination, therefore, opened fields for ambition which made it the central point in their thoughts rather than as with Ernest, something which he would suppose would have to be done some day, but about which, as about dying, he hoped there would be no need to trouble himself as yet. By way of preparing themselves more completely, they would have meetings in one another's rooms for tea and prayer and other spiritual exercises, 
placing themselves under the guidance of a few well-known tutors they would teach in sunday schools and be instant in season and out of season in imparting spiritual instruction to all whom they could persuade to listen to them but the soil of the more prosperous undergraduates was not suitable for the seed they tried to sow the small pieties with which they larded their discourse if chance threw them into the company of one whom they considered worldly caused nothing but aversion in the minds of those for whom they were intended when they distributed tracts dropping them by night into good men's letter-boxes while they were asleep their tracts got burnt or met with even worse contumely they were themselves also treated with the ridicule which they reflected proudly had been the lot of true followers of christ in all ages often at their prayer meetings was the passage of st paul referred to in which he bids his corinthian converts note concerning themselves that they were for the most part neither well-bred nor intellectual people they reflected with pride that they too had nothing to be proud of in these respects and like st paul glorified in the fact that in the flesh they had not much to glory ernest had several johnian friends and came thus to hear about the simeonites and to see some of them who were pointed out to him as they passed through the courts they had a repellent attraction for him he disliked them but he could not bring himself to leave them alone on one occasion he had gone so far as to parody one of the tracts they had sent round in the night and to get a copy dropped into each of the leading simeonites boxes the subject he had taken was personal cleanliness cleanliness he said was next to godliness he wished to know on which side it was to stand and concluded by exhorting simeonites to a freer use of the tub I cannot commend my hero's humor in this matter. His tract was not brilliant, but I mention the fact as showing that at this time he was something of a Saul, and took pleasure in persecuting the elect, not, as I have said, that he had any hankering after skepticism, but because, like the farmers in his father's village, though he would not stand seeing the Christian religion made light of, he was not going to see it taken seriously." Ernest's friends thought his dislike for the Simeonites was due to his being the son of a clergyman who, it was known, bullied him. It is more likely, however, that it rose from an unconscious sympathy with them, which, as in St. Paul's case, in the end drew him into the ranks of those whom he had most despised and hated. CHAPTER Forty Eight once recently when he was down at home after taking his degree his mother had had a short conversation with him about his becoming a clergyman set on there too by theobald who shrank from the subject himself this time it was during a turn taken in the garden and not on the sofa which was reserved for supreme occasions you know my dearest boy she said to him that papa she always called Theobald Papa when talking to Ernest, is so anxious that you should not go into the church blindly, and without fully realizing the difficulties of a clergyman's position. He has considered all of them himself, and has been shown how small they are when they are faced boldly, 
but he wishes you two to feel them as strongly and completely as possible before committing yourself to irrevocable vows, so that you may never, never have to regret the step you will have taken. This was the first time Ernest had heard that there were any difficulties, and he had not unnaturally inquired in a vague way after their nature. "'That, my dear boy,' rejoined Christina, "'is a question which I am not fitted to enter upon either by nature or education. I might easily unsettle your mind without being able to settle it again. Oh, no, such questions are far better avoided by women.' and I should have thought by men, but Papa wished me to speak to you upon the subject, so that there might be no mistake hereafter, and I have done so. Now, therefore, you know all. The conversation ended here, so far as this subject was concerned, and Ernest thought he did know all. His mother would not have told him he knew all, not about a matter of that sort, unless he actually did know it. Well, it did not come to very much. He supposed there were some difficulties, but his father, who at any rate was an excellent scholar and a learned man, was probably quite right here, and he need not trouble himself more about them. So little impression did the conversation make on him, that it was not till long afterwards that, happening to remember it, he saw what a piece of sleight of hand had been practiced upon him. Theobald and Christina, however, were satisfied that they had done their duty by opening their son's eyes to the difficulties of assenting to all a clergyman must assent to. This was enough. It was a matter of rejoicing, that though they had been put so fully and candidly before him, he did not find them serious. It was not in vain that they had prayed for so many years to be made truly honest and conscientious. "'And now, my dear,' resumed Christina, after having disposed of all the difficulties that might stand in the way of Ernest's becoming a clergyman, "'there is another matter on which I should like to have a talk with you. It is about your sister, Charlotte. You know how clever she is, and what a dear, kind sister she has been, and always will be, to yourself and Joey. I wish, my dearest Ernest, that I saw more chance of her finding a suitable husband than I do at Battersby.' and I sometimes think you might do more than you do to help her. Ernest began to chafe at this, for he had heard it so often, but he said nothing. You know, my dear, a brother can do so much for his sister if he lays himself out to do it. A mother can do very little. Indeed, it is hardly a mother's place to seek out young men. It is a brother's place to find a suitable partner for his sister." All that I can do is try to make Battersby as attractive as possible to any of your friends whom you may invite. And in that, she added, with a little toss of her head, I do not think I have been deficient hitherto. Ernest said he had already at different times asked several of his friends. Yes, my dear, but you must admit that they were none of them exactly the kind of young man whom Charlotte could be expected to take a fancy to. Indeed, I must own to having been a little disappointed that you should have yourself chosen any of these as your intimate friends. Ernest winced again. You never brought down Figgins when you were at Roughborough. Now I should have thought Figgins would have been just the kind of boy whom you might have asked to come and see us. 
Figgins had been gone through times out of number already. Ernest had hardly known him, and Figgins, being nearly three years older than Ernest, had left long before he did. Besides, he had not been a nice boy, and had made himself unpleasant to Ernest in many ways. Now, continued his mother, there's Townley. I have heard you speak of Townley as having rowed with you in a boat at Cambridge. I wish, my dear, you would cultivate your acquaintance with Townley and ask him to pay us a visit. The name has an aristocratic sound, and I think I have heard you say he is an eldest son. Ernest flushed at the sound of Townley's name. What had really happened in respect of Ernest's friends was briefly this. His mother liked to get hold of the names of the boys, and especially of any who were at all intimate with her son. The more she heard, the more she wanted to know. There was no gorging her to satiety. She was like a ravenous young cuckoo being fed upon a grass plot by a water wagtail. She would swallow all that Ernest could bring her, and yet be as hungry as before. And she always went to Ernest for her meals rather than to Joey, for Joey was either more stupid or more impenetrable. At any rate, she could pump Ernest much the better of the two. From time to time an actual live boy had been thrown to her, either by being caught and brought to Battersby, or by being asked to meet her, if at any time she came to Roughborough. She had generally made herself agreeable, or fairly agreeable, as long as the boy was present. But as soon as she got Ernest to herself again, she changed her note. Into whatever form she might throw her criticisms, it came always in the end to this that his friend was no good, that Ernest was not much better, and that he should have brought her someone else, for this one would not do at all. The more intimate the boy had been, or was supposed to be, with Ernest, the more he was declared to be not, till in the end he had hit upon the plan of saying, concerning any boy whom he particularly liked, that he was not one of his especial chums and that indeed he hardly knew why he had asked him. But he found he only fell on Scylla in trying to avoid Charybdis. For though the boy was declared to be more successful, it was Ernest who was not, for not thinking more highly of him. When she had once got hold of a name, she never forgot it. And how is so-and-so, she would exclaim, mentioning some former friend of Ernest's with whom he had either now quarrelled, or who had long since proved to be a mere comet and no fixed star at all. How Ernest wished he had never mentioned so-and-so's name, and vowed to himself that he would never talk about his friends in future. But in a few hours he would forget, and would prattle away as imprudently as ever. Then his mother would pounce noiselessly on his remarks as a barn owl pounces upon a mouse, and would bring them up in a pellet six months afterwards when they were no longer in harmony with their surroundings. Then there was Theobald. If a boy or college friend had been invited to Battersby, Theobald would lay himself out at first to be agreeable. He would do this well enough when he liked, and as regards the outside world, he generally did like. His clerical neighbors, and indeed all his neighbors, respected him yearly more and more, 
and would have given Ernest sufficient cause to regret his imprudence if he had dared to hint that he had anything, however little, to complain of. Theobald's mind worked in this way. Now, I know Ernest has told this boy what a disagreeable person I am, and I will just show him that I am not disagreeable at all, but a good old fellow, a jolly old boy, in fact a regular old brick, and that it is Ernest who is in fault all through. So he would behave very nicely to the boy at first, and the boy would be delighted with him, and side with him against Ernest. Of course, if Ernest had got the boy to come to Battersby, he wanted him to enjoy his visit, and was therefore pleased that Theobald should behave so well. But at the same time he stood so much in need of moral support, that it was painful to him to see one of his own familiar friends go over to the enemy's camp. For no matter how well we may know a thing, how clearly we may see a certain patch of color, for example, as red. It shakes us and knocks us about to find another see it, or be more than half inclined to see it as green. Theobald had generally begun to get a little impatient before the end of the visit, but the impression formed during the earlier part was the one which the visitor had carried away with him. Theobald never discussed any of the boys with Ernest. It was Christina who did this. Theobald let them come, because Christina in a quiet, persistent way insisted on it. When they did come he behaved, as I have said, civilly, but he did not like it, whereas Christina did like it very much. She would have had half Roughborough and half Cambridge to come and stay at Battersby if she could have managed it, and if it would not have cost so much money. She liked their coming, so that she might make a new acquaintance, and she liked tearing them to pieces and flinging the bits over Ernest as soon as she had had enough of them. The worst of it was that she had so often proved to be right. Boys and young men are violent in their affections, but they are seldom very constant. It is not till they get older that they really know the kind of friend they want, in their earlier essays young men are simply learning to judge character. Ernest had been no exception to the general rule. His swans had one after the other proved to be more or less geese, even in his own estimation, and he was beginning almost to think that his mother was a better judge of character than he was. But I think it may be assumed with some certainty that if Ernest had brought her a real young swan, she would have declared it to be the ugliest and worst goose of all that she had yet seen. At first he had not suspected that his friends were wanted, with a view to Charlotte. It was understood that Charlotte and they might perhaps take a fancy for one another, and that would be so very nice, would it not? But he did not see that there was any deliberate malice in the arrangement. Now, however, that he had awoke to what it all meant, he was less inclined to bring any friend of his to Battersby. It seemed to his silly young mind almost dishonest to ask your friend to come and see you, when all you really meant was, please, marry my sister. It was like trying to obtain money under false pretenses. If he had been fond of Charlotte, it might have been another matter but he thought her one of the most disagreeable young women in the whole circle of his acquaintance. She was supposed to be very clever. All young ladies are either very pretty, 
or very clever, or very sweet. They may take their choice as to which category they will go for, but go for one of the three they must. It was hopeless to try and pass Charlotte off as either pretty or sweet, so she became clever as the only remaining alternative. Ernest never knew what particular branch of study it was in which she showed her talent, for she could neither play nor sing nor draw, but so astute are women that his mother and Charlotte really did persuade him into thinking that she, Charlotte, had something more akin to true genius than any other member of the family. Not one, however, of all the friends whom Ernest had been inveigled into trying to inveigle, had shown the least sign of being so far struck with Charlotte's commanding powers as to wish to make them his own, and this may have had something to do with the rapidity and completeness with which Christina had dismissed them one after another and had wanted a new one. And now she wanted Townley. Ernest had seen this coming and had tried to avoid it, for he knew how impossible it was for him to ask Townley, even if he had wished to do so. Townley belonged to one of the most exclusive sets in Cambridge, and was perhaps the most popular man among the whole number of undergraduates. He was big and very handsome, and it seemed to Ernest the handsomest man who he ever had seen or ever could see, for it was impossible to imagine a more lively and agreeable countenance. He was good at cricket and boating, very good-natured, singularly free from conceit, not clever, but very sensible, and lastly, his father and mother had been drowned by the overturning of a boat when he was only two years old, and had left him as their only child and heir to one of the finest estates in the south of England. Fortune every now and then does things handsomely by a man all around. Townley was one of those to whom she had taken a fancy, and the universal verdict in this case was that she had chosen wisely. Ernest had seen Townley as everyone else in the university, except, of course, Don's, had seen him, for he was a man of mark, and being very susceptible, he had liked Townley even more than most people did. But at the same time it never so much as entered his head that he should come to know him. He liked looking at him if he got a chance, and was very much ashamed of himself for doing so, but there the matter ended. By a strange accident, however, during Ernest's last year, when the names of the crews for the scratch fours were drawn, he had found himself coxswain of a crew, among whom was none other than his especial hero, Townley. The three others were ordinary mortals, but they could row fairly well, and the crew on the whole was a rather good one. Ernest was frightened out of his wits. When, however, the two met, he found Townley no less remarkable for his entire want of anything like side, and for his power of setting those whom he came across at their ease, than he was for his outward accomplishments. The only difference he found between Townley and other people was that he was so very much easier to get on with. Of course Ernest worshipped him more and more. The scratch fours being ended, the connection between the two came to an end, but Townley never passed Ernest thenceforth without a nod and a few good-natured words. 
In an evil moment he had mentioned Townley's name at Battersby, and now what was the result? Here was his mother plaguing him to ask Townley to come down to Battersby and marry Charlotte. Why, if he had thought there was the remotest chance of Townley's marrying Charlotte, he would have gone down on his knees to him and told him what an odious young woman she was, and implored him to save himself while there was yet time. But Ernest had not prayed to be made truly honest and conscientious for as many years as Christina had. He had tried to conceal what he felt and thought as well as he could, and led the conversation back to the difficulties which a clergyman might feel to stand in the way of his being ordained, not because he had any misgivings, but as a diversion. His mother, however, thought she had settled all that, and he got no more out of her. Soon afterwards he found the means of escaping, and was not slow to avail himself of them. End of chapter 48 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman